calling all families. Discovery Plus has thousands of shows that will bring everyone together. Stream exclusive originals, plus a huge collection of family favorites, all for just $4.99. Discovery Plus is the streaming home for the whole family, plus so much more. Start your free trial. Welcome to How We Win. All over this country, extraordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. There are 27 days until the most important election day of our lives. But don't let the countdown fool you. Early voting is happening now. The election is here. With your help, we're going to win all the houses. Joining us for a really timely interview today is the co-founder and co-executive director of the Indivisible Project, Leah Greenberg. We cover a lot of important ground, including actions around the Supreme Court, what Trump's coronavirus infection means for the election, and of course, the importance of voting early. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And and this this is How How We We Win. Win. So how is your household? How is your young baby? Is everyone healthy? Everyone is healthy. We are, we're not going to fundraisers Mm -hmm. that are crowded. We're wearing our masks and sanitizing our hands and staying six feet away from people. That sounds so reasonable. That's, you're following a really good direction. Where where are you hearing that direction? (laughs) Just listen to Dr. Fauci. It's so easy. Even my baby is doing it. <laughs> how are how are you all doing at your house? We're good. We're, you know, I, I'm always surprised at my capacity to be surprised at yeah. at Trump um at this point because it, it's just one thing after another. Um I guess I just try to imbue some basic human nature into people that I kind of expect. So if someone gets sick, you sort of think, oh, maybe that's going to change their perspective on it a little bit. But um, he's just an outright sociopath that doesn't care about anyone other than himself and literally has shown it in his despicably irresponsible actions around getting infected himself with the coronavirus and what we now are calling the White House Corona Cluster, which is just (laughs) bananas that the White House is a hot spot for the coronavirus right now due to their inept and reckless handling of this. It's... It's just hard to wrap my head around. And, you know, throughout the first couple of days of all of this, I said, well, you know what? Best case scenario is Trump becomes a more empathetic person and we get our act together when it comes to coronavirus response and we provide better health care for people who are getting sick. Would have been been the best case scenario, yeah. Yeah, and I knew it wasn't going to happen, but you got to have some hope, right? And of course, not only did it not happen, not only does this person encourage people to, to not take precautions, not only is this the person who used taxpayer-funded health care to right. get ex- experimental treatments that nobody, very few people have access to. Right. But now he's said, well, um, I'm not going to talk to the Democrats anymore about the stimulus package that they've proposed. So 
lesson learned that he will never learn his lesson. Um, and we got to put our hope in ourselves, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. Bad news is it's up to us. Uh, good news is it's up to us. I mean, there really is stuff that we can do. I mean, killing this stimulus bill just, I, it, it makes zero sense. Um, but, I guess it's very on brand for the Republicans. It seems like there's one party that really wants to help people and another party that uh, just wants to help themselves. And Trump is sick. Trump is sick in many ways and his coronavirus infection being the least of it. Uh, He is uh, a sociopath. And we really, really need to be rising up right now, voting early, get talking to people, making sure that they're voting early. We need this to end, and it is within our power, it is within our people power to do something about it. Amen. Well, listen, maybe this is a big whatever, because uh, the day that this podcast drops is going to be four years to the day that (laughs) the infamous Access Hollywood tape came out that had Trump just being vulgar. Should I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to repeat what he said. This is a, this is a family podcast. Well, I think there's been enough people wearing those t-shirts and wearing the, at the women's march and wearing pussy hats and uh, pussy grabs back t-shirts and, and, and all of that to, to talk about it. But God, that just feels like a lifetime ago. And as, uh, as awful and revealing as that was, it's just feels almost inconsequential yet it's not i don't mean to diminish that and diminish you know um how awful that was but god it's just the last four years have just buried that yeah a lot's happened since then but i think it stands out for me because at that moment in the election i remember thinking oh this is it he's done because there's no way anybody in their right mind is gonna vote for somebody to run the country who talks about women like this and not only that but is stupid enough to say it while he's miked i mean surely and uh man was i wrong yeah we we all were and um it's a good thing to bring up actually and a good reminder because everything that he does that you feel like okay this this really is too far like you know coming out and saying don't worry about the coronavirus and you know don't, don't let it dominate you don't let it dominate you when um when over 200,000 lives have been lost and and many more people are dying every day from this people are losing their family members the point being Every week, every day almost, he comes up with something where you're like, this is it. And it hasn't been that for his supporters. His supporters, uh, who are essentially cult members at this point, will follow him and and rationalize whatever. The GOP will certainly rationalize it. And we talk about this with Leah Greenberg because uh, what is the end-all, be-all for them is the Supreme Court and, mm-hmm. and you know securing those seats. So – who cares how we talk about women? We've got Supreme Court seats to fill. Who cares how we talk about women when we've got a case coming up where we could take away women's rights? Right, right. right. So let's not um, just talk about women. Let's actually actively take away their rights. 
Right, right. It's a, a reminder to never look at what he's doing and say, okay, he's he's crossed the line because for some people he'll just never cross the line, which is why we have to turn out all of our people, all of the undecideds, all of the independents up and down the ballot for this to all work out. And time is running out because we've been talking about a countdown to election day, but the election is here. Mm -hmm. Early voting is happening in almost 20 states. Mail-in ballots have started going out in 43 states. I've got mine sitting on my desk just waiting to be filled out. And I'm going to fill it out early. Have you gotten yours yet? I haven't, although I haven't checked my mailbox today. I've been excited to get it. It should come any day now. Yeah, so in our state, every active registered voter gets a ballot by mail. In other states, you've got to, you know, request the the mail-in ballot, which a ton of people are doing. So uh, the election is here. So n- now is the time to do the thing that you've here been putting is. off. If if you've if you've been putting off registering, volunteering, talking to people. Well, this is it. This is the cul- it's here. yeah. This it's here. It's the culmination of the last four years of all this work that we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, our time is now. It's right now, and that's my. Let's talk about our reasons for hope now. That's my reason for hope. Actually, is the early voting that's happening uh, because we've already seen millions of people cast ballots early. The turnout and some of the lines that we've seen at some early voting places has has been incredible, and mm-hmm. it, it really uh, it really fills me with hope. Not the kind of hope that takes my foot off the gas and stops me from calling every single voter I can until election day, but that's my reason for hope. I I really feel like people are standing up to just have an outright repudiation of Trump and the GOP. What, what about you? What's your reason for hope today? Oh, my reason for hope is the vice presidential debate. I'm super excited that, you know, uh, it's definitely not going to be the uh, insane asylum uh, <laughs> that we saw <laughs> It might be an actual, actual something resembling a debate, right? We might learn what they, what their actual plans for the country are. So, you know, there are already shenanigans where the Pence team is saying they don't want a plexiglass divider up, and the Harris team is saying, "Yeah, put that up." Mike Pence is literally coming from a coronavirus hotspot. Why, (laughs) like? Why wouldn't they have some extra protection? But uh, in addition to making sure that everyone stays hopefully safe and healthy, I worked on the Harris Senate campaign back in 2016. And let me tell you, people, this woman prepares like you wouldn't believe. Um, She is going into any situation. She is well-briefed, well-educated, well-read. The debates are one of the most important components of an election. So I can tell you from experience that she and her team are probably going pretty much nonstop day in and day out prepping for this. So I think that we're in for a masterclass in in debating. And, you know, she doesn't have the, a, a woman and particularly a woman of color doesn't have the we'll call it luxury of behaving like a Biden or a Trump. You mm. know, if she starts yelling, shut up, man, it's going to derail her. It's it, it, right. It won't come across well. Um, or can you imagine 
you know, Kamala Harris or Hillary Clinton standing behind Mike Pence the way that Trump did four years ago during the debates, <sighs> they would be written off as lunatics. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but she does have the opportunity to appear really warm and relatable next to Pence, who I refer to as Flat Stanley because he just <laughs> comes across as so one-dimensional and uncharismatic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, zero charisma, and seems to have zero brain of his own uh, these days, just um, a mouthpiece for Trump. This actually could be the most consequential vice presidential debate in history, yeah. uh, despite the fact that, that Trump says he feels better than he has in 20 years um, and <laughs> and that he is you know, all better. He is sick with the coronavirus. He is... Uh, likely impaired by it. We don't know what the future holds for him. This is uh, an impactful debate. I'm very, very much looking forward to it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Kamala Harris is going to clean Mike Pence's clock. It's not even going to be close. It's going to be such a trouncing, and I'm going to love every minute of it. I think I might mute, like whenever Pence is speaking, I might just mute because he's just going to lie. Like everyone, by this point, every, like if even the doctors at Walter Reed are lying for Trump, like, you know, there's no hope anymore. You can't trust these people. If there was anybody on that team who you thought might be trustworthy, you were wrong. So. Well, hopefully Senator Harris will be the truth teller and her her words will come through and some people will hear them. We are starved for leadership in one of the most dire moments in our history. So that leads us to our call to action. Can you guess what we want you to do? Ring, ring, ring. Phone <laughs> bank time. We got to get on those phones. It, it really yeah. – and uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's podcast, please do. Uh, we go through basically a brief phone bank training uh, and give you the top tips and stuff so that you can be effective phone banking. We also have lots of those resources at Swing Left on swingleft.org slash phone bank. We have a call night coming up Thursday night and Sunday plus phone banks all throughout the week at various times with any of our groups and campaigns. Now is the time to talk. To, I mean, we talked about the early voting and how important it is to let people know like when, where, and how they can vote. This is how we do it, is by reaching out and actually having these conversations. Absolutely. I think that you know the, the last few years have, have taught us that, gosh, every minute that you volunteer – to do something makes a big difference. And one of the first organizations to show us what that looked like in the time of the resistance is Indivisible. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited to listen to your interview with Leah, who's a co-founder of Indivisible. Leah Greenberg is a co-founder and co-executive director of the Indivisible Project. Along with her co-founder and spouse, Ezra Levin, Leah has been featured as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, included on GQ's 50 Most Powerful People in Trump's Washington. I hate that it's Trump's Washington. Let's just call it Washington. And ranked number two on the Politico's 50 list of top thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics. She's also the co-author of We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy 
after Trump, which I'm very interested in. Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's great to be here today. First of all, who was number one on that top 50 list? <laughs> you know, it was Steve Bannon in 2017. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, well, when they name you to the top 50 list, they give you this Q&A of questions to fill out. And we included a couple that were barbs at Steve Bannon. So we were nice. Uh, we, we did our best to punch up at him. Well, you weren't punching up very high. You were right next to him. So <laughs> <laughs> and he and where's he right now? Uh, well, let's not ask. Let's Being not ask. Prosecuted not, is my understanding. Yeah, exactly. They dragged mm-hmm. him off that boat, which seems like. A million years ago, but I guess it was like last month or something. But yeah, time time has taken on a new quality in 2020. <laughs> it really has. So indivisible, of course, is very well known, but a lot of people might not remember how it actually began. After Trump was elected, you and your husband Ezra wrote a playbook for strategically using our collective people power. Can you talk about how it all started and what were your expectations? Absolutely. Well, so Ezra and I were both congressional staffers early in our careers in Washington. We'd both gone on to other things. um, And I was working in human trafficking policy, human poverty policy. And then right after the 2016 election, we were feeling the same sense of horror and helplessness that everybody was around the country. But we also noticed that there was this wave of organizing that was happening, that people were coming together, you know, in uh, living rooms and church basements and communities across the country and reacting to Donald Trump, who had never been political before. And we thought maybe our contribution as Hill staffers could be to take the lessons that we had learned when we were on the Hill, when we saw a really powerful spirited insurgency of local community groups used against us, uh, and that was the team, mm. take mm-hmm. those lessons, reverse engineer them, put them out into the world and give people a playbook to use for their organizing. So we put together a 20 page Google doc. Uh, it was, you know, lessons from the Tea Party, tactics you can use. Here's the strategy we recommend, form a local group put it out into the world December 2016, and we were promptly blown away by thousands of people picking the guide up and using it to actually form these groups and calling them Indivisible, which was the title of the guide. And suddenly we were catapulted into the middle of this incredible movement that had begun to spring up and that was getting organized and was going to take shape over the course of the coming months. Yeah. So when when did you all really realize you were – now building an organization that was going to have significant electoral impact. Mm. So I think the first point point when I realized we were definitely building an organization was a lot of the early indivisible leaders would, they'd reach out, they'd email us, they'd friend us on Facebook. And I found myself about two weeks after the guide had gone out in a conversation with somebody who was having her first meeting of an indivisible group the next day in, um, I believe it was, it was uh, in northern New York City, and I can't remember which one. But um, she was asking, hey, what, what, what else should we have on the agenda? What can we hope to accomplish from this particular place in New York? And we went back and forth and we strategized about like, well, Chuck Schumer is important to pressure. So let's see if we can focus on him, et cetera. And I just realized, you know, you can't put a guide like that out there and not follow up because people have questions. They want to know what's most strategic now. They want to know, you know, how do I raise and keep, raise money and use it for my local group without forming a C3? Um, there are so many questions that come up when people get together and actually start organizing in their communities. And there weren't a lot of entities that were structured and set up around the basic premise of local volunteer groups dedicated to action and dedicated to sustaining as communities. And so 
that was really where that came from. And I think for me, the uh, the link to electro work was very obvious very early on. Um, people weren't, you know, getting into they, they, our guide was originally advocacy oriented, and it was about town halls and it was about right. congressional offices. But you know, people weren't doing it because they just loved town halls so much, right? They were doing it because they wanted to do the most strategic thing that they possibly could at that moment to push back against Donald Trump and his enablers. And so it was always clear to me that as elections started to roll around, people were going to get very involved. And we saw that at the first wave of that really with Georgia's sixth district when uh, we had, you know, a dozen indivisible groups uh, working their butts off on the ground for John Ossoff um, and coming incredibly close to victory. And then, you know, continuing the fight. I I remember we actually talked to one of the indivisible groups who had been working the night that uh, Ossoff lost. And, you know, we were expecting them to be really bummed. And actually they were excited. They were like, well, we've got a Republican representative. We're going to keep pressuring her. And there is a state legislative race that we're going to work on. And, you know, 2018 is right around the corner. And hey, now we're a purple district. And that was really for me the moment when it was like, we are, we are going to keep in the fight. Yeah. Yeah. The, the local leaders are just remarkable. The work and the stick to as you said, is is crazy. And for what it's worth, I got into this through a, a local group that was using the Indivisible Playbook and had identified themselves as an Indivisible group. And like you said, they, they had like town hall actions and different kind of committees, and they had a Flip It Blue committee, and that mm-hmm. really resonated with me. So that's how I found Swing Left, and Swing Left has been working – hand in hand with indivisible leaders and groups, you know, from the beginning. And it's Absolutely. just been so powerful. Absolutely. And that's what I, that's another thing I really love about the grassroots partnerships that we have, where it's really an all of the above strategy, right? Like people are working across organizations, across issues. There's um, a real embrace of different, different tactics, different strategies, deep partnerships at the local level and at the national level all pushing in the same direction, even if we're not all doing the same thing at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of that, we had great success working together in the midterms. Um, Despite the lies from Trump about the coronavirus, uh, we actually do need to take it very seriously. And Mm -hmm. our campaign work has changed a lot because of it. What did you learn from the historic turnout we had during the midterms that still applies to the virtual organizing work we're doing now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think first that, you know, an election is not election day. It is the sum of all of the actions that lead to election day, right? Mm. And that basically starts the day after the election. It's everything from you know, branding and creating the public persona of the incumbent and the candidates through your advocacy, through your um, earned media efforts, through your letters to the editor, et cetera, to um, deep organizing and deep community outreach that isn't just about knocking doors. It's about what messages you're putting out within your own networks and circles. And then it is actually about the uh, the genuine elbow grease of getting out the vote, um, which, again, is not the last couple of days. It is a long push um, to, you know, to identify the voters, to repeatedly touch the voters, to get folks registered, and then ultimately to make that final push. So I guess what I would say is the top lesson for me is that we are part of this ongoing virtuous cycle of advocacy and electoral results where each of those two things reinforce each other, right? You spend your time in 2017 
at healthcare town halls. And those are actually the things that write the attack ads for 2018, which helped to get those folks out of office, which helps to have a better legislative outcome in 2019. It's all, it's all a virtuous cycle. I couldn't agree more for so many reasons. I mean, you talked about John Ossoff's race back in 2017, was it? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And and now, uh, you know, we've got a really great shot at taking that Senate seat and putting him in the Senate uh, in this election. And it's because of the groundwork that was done then and the amazing organizing that Stacey Abrams, who really legitimately won the governorship, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, was uh, cheated out of that post. Um, but all the amazing organizing that, that she's done in Georgia, leading us up to this point where we have a real a real shot at Georgia in this election cycle. So yeah. um, the work continues year round. Um, so speaking about this election and some advocacy work that we need to do, Trump and his administration have been attacking vote by mail ballots with false claims of fraud. And it's just a, a blatant attempt to sow doubt in the results. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some actions that we can take to fight back against this effort to suppress the vote right now? So I think there are a whole set of things, and it depends on where you live and what your conditions are. Um, the first is what we're doing, which is getting folks to vote as early as possible using the best advisable method for their circumstances. And that's let's just say that again. Everyone vote early as possible <laughs> using the best uh, options you have available. I just wanted to reinforce that okay. point because I thought it was really important. <laughs> okay, great. great. Um, the second is that we are going to have to organize to push back on some of these things as they are happening and also be prepared for the fact that election night and the election, the days after election, the election night are going to be, they're going to be rough. Um, yeah. There is, it is quite likely that you're going to see an early imbalance in the counts in a lot of states, just based on the way that they count vote by mail ballots versus in-person ballots. Mm -hmm. um, quite likely that a lot of the a lot of the swing states are going to start with a lead on the Republican side that'll even out as Democratic votes come in by vote by mail. There'll be any number of challenges to them. It's going to be absolutely crucial during that period that we're really seizing the narrative and pushing back against Donald Trump's false claims of victory, because we all know that that's, this is not a man who will ever give a concession speech, right? He is going to claim that the, uh, he won the election. He's going to claim that it was stolen. If he doesn't think he's winning, he's going to be doing everything he can to get people to challenge uh, the count. And it'll be a crucial moment for our activism, our advocacy to push back on that narrative. So normally um, in an election cycle, we're really trying to like run through the finish line of election day. And in this case, we're really encouraging people to lay it on the field for election day, but also to be realistic about the fact that in the immediate few days after that, there's going to be crucial work to do. Yeah, that's and that's a hard one for me. I, I really I still find myself, despite all that I know about what's going to happen on election day and the days following, I still find myself like wanting to have a party to watch the election results on you know yeah. Tuesday night, like it's a normal election, like we're actually going to have some kind of. Um, call on election night. And I, I think we all really need to not expect that. It could happen, but let's not expect it. I mean, so I'm personally never having an election party again after 2016. So I can't yeah. quite empathize with that. Uh, no, seriously, we had a, like, a bunch of people at our house, like, you know, 30 friends and 
the night went downhill fast. It was mm-hmm. quite disastrous. I've still got people who like never want to come back to my house because it's the place <laughs> where it's the place where they were when Donald Trump was elected. So, um, but that said, I actually think that election parties and celebration that night are part of that strategy, right? Um, we want to reinforce the successful participation of a lot of people in our democracy interest in, attention on, enthusiasm for the election. We want to recharge with our friends during the moments that we can. We just need to also be clear that like, it is a, it is a milestone. It is not the finish line. That's a really great point. I appreciate that framing. We'll do that. And um, I also had a terrible election night party with my daughter <laughs> and some of her girlfriends to watch the first female president get elected. So, Yep. Yep. It was um, a bad night all around. Hey, it has fueled so many of us to this moment that we are really like knocking on right now. It is, it is here. Exactly. Um, here exactly. we go. So, uh, what does uh, do you have a bead on on um, you know this now this week so much uncertainty about what Trump having coronavirus does to the election? What should we be concerned with, and, yeah. and what can we do? Well, look, I think first we're in uncharted territory here and anyone who tells you for sure that they know how this plays out is just being silly. I'm looking for answers though. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not the right person then. I think that there is historically and traditionally, it is common for presidents who are ill to get a polling boost. Um, that seems unlikely to happen in this situation, given that a very solid majority of Americans think that Trump got coronavirus because of his own recklessness and because he is continuing to expose people through some combination of malevolence and just complete disregard for others, even as he's sick through his own reckless actions. Um, I think the ride with secret service agents around to wave to his supporters is kind of the, um, maybe just the, the symbolic epitome of the Trump presidency, just complete, complete bottomless need to satisfy his own ego literally at the expense of other people's lives. Yeah. Um, so I think that it is a negative thing for him electorally. Um, I hope that they are canceling or radically restructuring all of the debates. There's just absolutely no reason that a vice presidential debate should be going forward in person at this moment, given what we know now about how the white house is actually adhering to safety protocols. The vice presidential debate on Wednesday, you don't think should go forward? No, no, absolutely. I mean, certainly not in person. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, everything that we see that's coming out of the White House around safety protocols at this point indicate that they've just had a complete disregard for following normal and, you know, CDC advised protocols. And you just shouldn't be exposing other people to that. Um, Personally, as a resident of D.C., I'm pretty mad that my city is being exposed to that. This is like officially one of the bigger COVID clusters in our city. And it's coming from people who should know better. Um, it's coming from the White House. It's just, you know, beyond exactly. the pale. Exactly. Okay. Well, we'll we'll watch that unfold. And um, and because it's 2020, we don't just have a couple of things to pay attention to. We also have <laughs> uh, other things that we need to be fighting for. And one is the fight going on for the Supreme Court. Um, mm-hmm. So briefly, let's just talk about that. Mitch McConnell is – Still trying to rush through the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett. 
even while voting is already underway in many states and Senate Judiciary members, as we've just talked about, have tested positive for the coronavirus. It's just openly hostile to the American people who favor, including, by the way, uh, a plurality of Republicans waiting for the new president to be inaugurated. So what actions should we be looking for to fight this appointment? Well, so I would start from kind of a basic strategic premise, which is that Mitch McConnell will do everything he can to confirm Amy Coney Barrett unless political conditions force his hand, right? Like this is this is the Republican end goal. There is nothing they care more about than Supreme Court justices and dominating that court. That's right. And also there are still some Republicans who are concerned about their own reelections, who don't want to take tough votes right now and who privately probably wish that they didn't have to deal with this. Uh, we've, you know, we're a couple of weeks out at this point from RBG's passing we are seeing how this is landing in the polls. No Republican is getting a boost out of it. It is not a winning campaign issue for them. Mm-hmm. So I think what we can do is continued advocacy and pressure on the folks who are up in this cycle to make them push privately, at least, for a vote after the election. Simultaneously, we're in a really weird position because we are currently in a place where uh, Republicans would not, if they needed to vote today, have a quorum to actually vote on Amy Coney Barrett. And so we need to encourage and support Democrats to withhold quorum to make sure that Republicans aren't able to move forward as long as that's the case. And, you know, we're waiting to see whether um, we're still waiting to see, frankly, whether the irresponsibility of Republicans will contribute to even more cases, which could continue to limit their ability to actually put a majority vote together. Right. Um, we got to watch and see. It's certainly a unique situation in that normally it's a really simple, like, do you have the votes or do you not have the votes? And in this case, it's like, do you have the votes and or are they healthy and out of quarantine? Um, <laughs> but it's also entirely a result of their own irresponsibility and refusal to deal with this pandemic. So that is where we are. Yeah. Well, what really resonates with me also is what we talked about at the beginning of the interview is early voting, uh, especially with these vulnerable senators, because if they see a big turnout and early vote, then that is some substantial political pressure on them. So, Right, right. And I think we've just got to – the best hope we have is to get this until after the election or to hold this until after the election. Um, We – I think we, sh- we shouldn't fool ourselves. This is a really uphill battle. One of the things that unites the Republicans Party more than anything is the ability to pack the courts. And also, you know, if we're able to deliver a really resounding victory in the election, if they haven't yet confirmed Amy Comey Barrett, um, as long as we're able to hold out that vote, there is hope. And of course, there's the possibility for Mark Kelly to be seated early. So it's really just right. a time game. We are playing for time at this point. Okay. Well, one more question, and then I'll let you go. Um, I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests at the end, but I think it has a special resonance for you because you and Ezra are about to have a baby in, a, in about two weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll ask you, what gives you the most hope for the future? Um, look, I think the thing that gives me the most hope is that the last four years have demonstrated both you know, how much darkness there really was within American life and under the surface for so long in the forms of these, you know, forces of hatred and greed, but also how many people were capable of tapping into their leadership, of tapping into their love for each other, of tapping into, you know, their own faith in each other and stepping forward and just really picking up and running um, and building. 
And, you know, I, I hear stories from all around the country of people who never thought that they were a leader, never thought that they were an activist, but something snapped for them after 2016. And now they are leading an indivisible group or they are running for office or they wrote the bill that is being passed by their local city council. So for me, I'm just like, in my position, I'm constantly hearing from people who uh, an extraordinary time called upon them and they rose to that moment and they are doing extraordinary things. And that's just a constant source of inspiration and hope. I love that. Leah, thank you so much for talking with us. Congratulations again to you and Ezra for your growing family. And also just thank you for everything that you've done for our democracy over the last almost four years now. It's really remarkable. Well, thank you, Steve. It's a, it is a pleasure to be part of a movement of extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. I love it. You know, that's how we start our podcast with Wait, that phrase. Really? <laughs> yeah, it is. No way. Really? Oh my goodness. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And uh, you told me that initially you guys were going to uh, title your book, How We Win, but then you, you didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. Um, there was a another book that was coming out the same in the same like couple of months that was also titled How We Win. And so we were like, oh, we got to we got to find new titles. So we moved <laughs> on. I, I did kind of wish that we had stuck with it in retrospect. So um, I'm glad that it's gone to good use with y'all. Well, I'm glad you're here on How We Win podcast, and it's the full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. Of course, of course. Thank you for joining us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. If you haven't done it yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. It makes a real difference and helps more volunteers find us. Share on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to phone bank at swingleft.org slash phone bank. We really appreciate you being here with us. We'll be back with some more next Wednesday. See you then. Oh, 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 oh